Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the first two-thirds of the book of Acts. Now, why this strange fraction applied to a book of the Bible, you may ask. The reason why is Luke, or the book of Acts is a tremendously complex literary story and history, and there's all sorts of interweaving strands, um, all sorts of things going on, really interesting and really complicated to kind of parse out the, the progress of action in it. But the reason to look at the first two thirds is because there is kind of there are two different kind of stories, um, at least, that are being unfolded in Acts. So one of the stories, and that's the one we're going to focus on, that goes from chapter 1 through chapter 19, is the work of the Holy Spirit to gather in all the estranged communities of the earth to the gospel salvation through Jesus Christ. And then there's another story that concerns growing political danger and confrontation between the gospel message and primarily Rome, but also those who stand in for Rome, including some Jews. And the first one, the first story of the ingathering of the people starts very much centered in Jerusalem with the disciples Peter and John who knew Jesus directly and were with him in his ministry. The political confrontation story centers much more heavily on the Apostle Paul. Of course, there's lots of overlap. The two groups meet each other along the way, which is why Acts is so interesting and complicated. But the story we're going to focus on today is much more this Holy Spirit gathering story. And we will, at a future dates take up the last third of Acts, um, probably in the context of talking about political theology and related topics. So to get started, um, Dad, you were trained back in the days where historical veracity seems to have been uh, still the looming issue for everybody. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you were taught to interface with the Book of Acts? Well, first of all, let me say I welcome any alternative approach to the theology of the Book of Acts, uh, other than the inherited options, all of which I find pretty unsatisfactory. So I'm looking forward to hear hearing what you're going to say about this uh, in a little while. But it benefits the readers, I suppose, to hear a little bit of the scholarly background and the way in which uh, I was educated and then continued to educate myself in the study of the Book of Acts. Um, when I was at a student at Seminex uh, in St. Louis, uh, this was right in the aftermath, you know, of the Second Vatican Council, and my New Testament professor, uh, Robert Smith, I believe it was, who later taught at Berkeley, uh, engaged with a Roman Catholic professor, and I can't remember his name at all, I'm sorry, uh, at the at a seminary in St. Louis, and together they team taught a course on the Book of Acts, and uh, of course we were expected to read the Book of Acts in Greek, which was pretty demanding. Luke's Greek is not the simplest. No. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, it's the most literary Greek in the New Testament. It's also much imitating the style of the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so it's, it's, it was challenging to do that. But the commentary that was assigned to us was by a German named Ernst Henschen. And this commentary, as you mentioned, was dominated by the question of historicity. And it was a pretty depressing 
commentary <laughs> to read because he threw out one story after the other as legendary and so forth and so on. At one point, I remember he, in the middle of the commentary, he gets a little bit exuberant and says, what a wonderful legacy Luke has left us in the book of Acts. And I said to myself, what? <laughs> it's all <laughs> crumbled to dust under your critical scrutiny. Scrutiny. Um, I, I do think uh, we have to, of course, recognize that Luke is not a modern historian. He's an, a classical historian whose models are the Septuagint and probably certain Hellenistic uh, models of history writing, which were not, the, the point was not to uncover Vist Eigentlich Geschehenist, how it actually happened. That's not the purpose of ancient histories. The purpose of ancient histories is to speak to the present, to tell people uh, how they um, have arrived at the moment they're at and what that portends for their future. Can I just say, I'm not sure history has really changed all that much. I mean, that the, the work of history, of telling of history, is all that different. I mean, all, all histories are told, even now, with an eye to how they impact us in the present. And I think even the most rigorous of historiographers look at their sources, even of recent times, and realize that everything is very perspective dependent. I mean, I think this is the, the postmodern critique of modernism. Yes, of say? course. I would. But I to quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator from New York, no one is entitled to their own facts. And I think that's Fair what enough. makes modern history different, is that there's an obligation to establish historical facts and historical chronologies. Now, I think the postmodern critique that you're mentioning is correct, because how we weave the facts together to tell a story very much involves the subjectivity and creativity of the individual historian. Well, anyway, my first experience, scholarly experience, in the study of the Book of Acts was a big, fat disappointment. <laughs> Sounds like it. From there, I have to mention another German author that I benefited much more from, Oskar Kuhlmann, whom you might remember from your Strasbourg days because he originated and taught at the Strasbourg Theological Faculty, yes, also yes. later in Basel. And Coleman wrote a book called Christ and Time, <clears throat> and he really took his paradigm from Luke, in which he argued that Christ is at the center of time, that the Christ event is an objective reality, and that what it signifies is what he called an inaugurated eschatology. The end is not yet, but the end has begun. And Coleman compared the Christ event to, to D-Day, the invasion of France by the Allies, and, and he compared the eschaton to VE, Victory Europe Day, sometime later. So his idea wow. was the battle has begun and the decisive turn has been taken, but what remains is a great mop-up operation till final victory is achieved. And I've always thought Coleman's scheme here, if it's really true to the author of Luke Acts, is a very good one, and, and I've always appreciated that. But naturally, he was not considered to be critical enough by others. And another commentator, Hans Gonzelman, wrote a commentary on Acts in which uh, he said rather sardonically, 
he conceded the point to Coleman that, as it were, with an unhappy sigh, yes, in Lukacs, eschatology has been historicized. And this, of course, is a great fall from grace. (laughs) Right, right. That you're not living, anxiously awaiting the parousia at any minute, but instead you think that through the work of the Spirit and the mission of the church to the nations, the eschatological reality has now been reduced to event within history. So Kanzelman kind of reflected the Boltmann School's criticism of Coleman's double emphasis on objective reality and inaugurated eschatology. The second version of that battle was between Christer Stendhal and Ernst Kasemann. Stendhal, of course, was a Swede, and he was famous for publishing a little essay called Paul Among, or a little book called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles, and his critique of the way Augustine and Luther read Paul basically as an individualistic existentialist and failing to realize that Paul's real issue was how to get Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And so that was uh, the salvation history perspective that Stendhal was defending, that what we see in Paul is a, a movement from Jewish particularism to Christian universalism, to which Kaseman said, Thank you very much, Christer. You've just Lucanized Paul. You've, <laughs> you've just taken Luke's account of Paul uncritically and superimposed it on the real historical Paul. So they got into quite a standoff. Well, and it's interesting, Stendhal's position also has that um, implication of Jewish inferiority and the backwardness or parochialism of the Old Testament, just like we were criticizing in our last episode. Yeah, and you know, they they traded insults basically on this <laughs> issue. Theologians? Never. Never, no. They fight like dirty dogs sometimes. Stendhal said, Kaseman's position turns the law uh, of the negative role of the law, uh, revealing and uh, binding people in sinfulness, is simply a trope for uh, denigrating Judaism as nothing but legalistic self-righteousness. And then Kaseman, in turn, accused Stendhal, sure, Judaism was where it starts, but it's very quickly left behind as a very primitive stage of religion particularistic and exclusivistic, et cetera, et cetera. Then I finally read Joseph Fitzmeyer's two-volume anchor volume commentary on Luke, which I found very, very helpful. And it gave me a much more, and of course, Fitzmeyer is a Catholic scholar. And so I think a much more balanced and objective uh, account of the theology of Luke Acts. And here's where a particular issue on, on Luke's treatment of Paul in the book of Acts arises, because if you read Paul's account of the Apostolic Council in Galatians 2, chapter 2, Paul uh, is being antagonized by the circumcision party that invokes the authority of James. Paul says he goes up to Jerusalem by revelation to lay his ministry before the so-called pillars of the church, lest he had been running in vain, something along those lines. But in the book of Acts, 
Paul is delegated by the church in Antioch, not by revelation, but sent to check out this whole question of Gentile inclusion. And there, it's Peter and James who make the whole argument for Gentile inclusion. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a rather significant discrepancy here, enough to make me question whether they're even talking about the same event. In any case, I think Konzelman was right when he said, Luke is in the tradition of Paul, but the image of Paul has been transformed according to Luke's own purposes. And the last thing I want to mention is a a contemporary of ours that you know as well as I do, Cheryl Peterson, who teaches Mm, at, at Trinity Seminary. And she's written a very good book on the Holy Spirit in the church and including, I think, a very helpful uh, discussion of, of um, the book of Acts, which I had discussed in my systematic theology. And I think she's thinking along the same lines as you, that this whole scholarly discussion has been, in many ways, uh, an instructive failure. We really don't yet get what the book of Acts is about. So, I know that you got, one of the reasons you got involved in the book of Acts was your work as an ecumenical theologian for the Strasbourg Institute when you were assigned the portfolio of Lutheran dialogue with Pentecostals. And that caused you to read deeply and think deeply on the theology of the book of Acts. So show us a better way, Sarah. <laughs> well, it's true. And in this case, I'm quite like Cheryl Peterson, who's also on the Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue. If you hang out with Pentecostals, you have got to bone up on Acts and get a handle on it. Because that's that's the really, as, as Romans or Galatians is the canon within a canon for Lutherans, Acts is the canon within a canon for Pentecostals. But the thing is, Romans, Galatians, and Acts are all part of the New Testament canon, so we all have to handle all of them and and think through them. So, well, let me back up. Actually, my history with Acts starts a little bit earlier than that. Um, As I've probably mentioned several times before, my beloved New Testament professor in seminary was Donald Jewell, who um, gave back to me what the Revised Common Lectionary took away, helping me see the deep integrity between the the Testaments and that it wasn't a a simple trick of prophecy fulfillments and... um, leaving all the Old Testament stuff behind. And that's what made me interested in following up our last episode by talking about Acts. Anyway, he gave a course on the Gospel of Luke, which I loved. And it was particularly striking to me because I discovered themes that I thought were exclusively Pauline in terms of faith and salvation and the primacy of God's action rather than our action are all there in Luke too. They're not expressed in the same way because it's a gospel, not a letter, and because it's Luke and it's not Paul. But it wasn't like being a Lutheran meant holding Romans against everything else in the New Testament and saying, well, but Romans is just obviously better. So, you know, who cares what Luke says or whatever. So that was a good exercise also in the integrity of New Testament theology as a whole without in any way denying the particular concerns of different authors and books. Well, anyway, so then I suddenly went, hey, Luke has a sequel. That's so cool. So after taking this fabulous course with Don on Luke, I settled down one day in my, you know, Starbucks or whatever and read Acts and I was bitterly disappointed. <laughs> Not from reading the commentaries, but from reading Acts itself. Because on my, my first read through, it seemed to me to go from this 
interesting, complex, very personal, um, exciting gospel of failure and redemption to being this really obnoxious, triumphalistic narrative <laughs> of, of one glory to the next for the early church. And, you know, among other things, I didn't see any church that remotely resembled that. And I just thought like, oh, so after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, everything's supposed to be great, huh? Well... <laughs> No, that's wrong. And so I just kind of, you know, personally for myself, cast acts aside. So then, of course, um, as you alluded to, when I went to Strasbourg and started working on the Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue, I just started reading about Pentecostals and reading P Pentecostal theologians. And of course, you can't go very far without discovering that their their origin story on Azusa Street is their belief in, in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit they take out of the book of Acts. And so it was clear there was no way around getting at Pentecostals without getting a better sense of Acts. So I read it again, and I still didn't like it, but I read it again. And I just, I mean, basically the way I came around to Acts was by rereading it over and over and puzzling it out. What is this about? While also reading, you know, Pentecostal history and theologians and looking to commentaries when I needed help and, um, and then I, I should add one other piece of the puzzle, of course, is that I was once again living a bicultural life. You know, we'd gone from the U.S. to France. And when I was younger, of course, we, uh, as you know, we lived in Slovakia. So I had a very early formative experience of a cross-cultural community and especially cross-cultural church community. And the church we attended in Strasbourg was a very diverse group of people from many different nations, um, only held together really by the English language. And it was actually that first that began to crack me open where Axe was concerned because I began to see, oh, all right, so Axe is trying to figure out how these all these different nations and ethne can coexist in one space. And how does that work? And why does that work? And what's necessary to make it work? And once I began to have that more, I guess, existential orientation to the challenge of a cross-cultural religious community, then I was able to my eyes were opened, shall we say, the scales fell from my eyes, and I was able to see what the actual story of, or what I believe the story of Acts is driving at, and the there is definitely, as you say, there's a, a bit of a probably cleanup action going on and trying to make the story a little bit happier than maybe it was, though like you, I, I almost doubt whether Galatians and Acts are talking about the same conflict. They read so differently. So yeah, let, let's just assume that that Luke is um, molding the facts <laughs> to hit a, to fit a certain certain theological intention. But I think there is a lot more integrity to his story. But you have to. I think the challenge is to see what Luke is trying to get at, and not what we are trying to get out of it. And I would say that, as you said, there's a it's a lot of instructive failures in trying to extract extract the theology out of Acts. Yeah, may I just comment on that quickly that how important a literary criticism is before you raise either historical or ontological questions. You have to just take the literature as it presents itself and say, what does this literature on its own terms intend to do? And until you've made some significant progress methodologically on answering that question, it's futile to even raise historical or ontological questions because you don't know what kind of truth claims the literature is making yet. 
Yeah, you always have to start with genre. And that's that's really how I was trained in biblical studies, is to first figure out what kind of literature it is and let it tell you what it wants to tell you before you go with your own sorts of questions to it. And, you know, but that doesn't necessarily make it much easier for Acts, because like I mentioned at the beginning, it's a really complex book. It, it interweaves in a level that we're more accustomed to seeing in modernist novels. Right. Um, and I mean, it, like the last few chapters are like this, it's like Treasure Island, practically. It's this exciting series of shipwreck stories and nautical disasters, <laughs> <laughs> which you're not at all expecting from the beginning. So there's just, and it, it ends rather abruptly too. Paul makes it to Rome, but he's just kind of living sort of freely. There's a guard over him and he's making tents and talking about the gospel. And we've been built up to these great expectations. To Caesar, you have appealed and to Caesar, you shall go. But he never makes it to Caesar in the story, you know, which has made many people wonder, like, was there supposed to be a volume three that never got written or got lost? Yeah. Um, it, it's almost as as inconclusive an ending as the Gospel of Mark. So, OK, so what I would like to focus on then and Dad, I want you to um, interface with me here, especially where the apocalyptic versus salvation history debate comes in. You know more about that than I do. Um, but I want to make an argument here specifically about the Holy Spirit in gathering story. And I do want to get back to um, the, the baptism question and other such things, but I, I think we'll defer that to a, a, another episode. So yeah, so what I want to do is is tell here this Holy Spirit story, which I think is really important to figuring out what L Luke is getting at in this book. So the way the story begins is with, um, well, first of all, an introduction to Theophilus, just like the Gospel of Luke. And there's this very seminal moment where we have sort of a repeat of Luke 24, where Jesus appears to the disciples who are gathered on the hill and he ascends into heaven. But before he does, um, in both Luke 24 and in Acts 1, he says, wait in Jerusalem and the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And in Luke 1, it's really important. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that is um, not just a poetic lavishness there. It is actually a very precise sequence that will be followed. And so in chapter two, then we get um, the story that's um, well known to us from the day of Pentecost, for which, of course, Pentecostals are named. And um, a side note, uh, I didn't realize this still well into adulthood, but Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday before it was a Christian holiday. I remember hearing it in church, it was the day of Pentecost and hearing it as a tautology. Well, like, of course, it was the day of Pentecost because the day of Pentecost is the day the Holy Spirit comes. Well, no, actually, it's a Jewish holiday. It's in called in, in Yiddish or Hebrew. Shavuot, and it's the celebration of the wheat harvest and also the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And of course, that's that's quite significant because it's this dramatic theophany that takes place, giving the the chosen people something of God. Uh, you know, the the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai, and then um, on the day of Pentecost, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, another really important detail that I think is often lost in a lot of preaching, at least among um, the preachers I have heard um, about Pentecost is that it's only Jews who are present. And this is so confusing because we hear about the, you know, the Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Cappadocians and Phrygians and, you know, all these different people. So it sounds like we're having like a roll call of the nations. And, uh, you know, I've heard it said many times, you know, um, 
Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And there's always been kind of a subtext of like, when we Gentiles finally got let in after, you know, implied this long exclusion or whatever, but actually there are no Gentiles in this story at all yet. This is all Jews. And so the key thing that's happening here is that Jews have already spread all over the Mediterranean worlds. Of course, they're sent out of Palestine with the Roman destruction of the temple in AD 70. But by this time, there are significant communities living all over the place. And they're so long established that many of their people have forgotten how to speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Just like, you know, in the United States, you know, most people speak English as their native language, no matter what their ancestral or ethnic background is. That's the situation that's going on there. Now, they kept their religion, and they would like to go back to Jerusalem to make sacrifices in the temple, because, you know, that's the ideal place to do it. Um, but they would go back not being able to talk to each other. And what happens then with the gift of the Holy Spirit that happens on Pentecost is, first of all, the remarkable miracle that all these different languages of Jews are made to be a vehicle for the good news about Jesus Christ. Notice they're not given the gift of all being able to understand Hebrew again. What they're given is the ability in their own new languages to understand the extension of Israel's story of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I think that's that's a really important detail for Luke. And it is a kind of foreshadowing of the Gentile inclusion that's to come, but it's not that quite yet. Yeah, right. And it, it would have meant to early Jewish Christians one of the fulfillments of the post-exilic hopes and promises that the scattering of the tribes of Israel uh, would be reversed and someday the dispersed Jews would be able to stream back to Jerusalem. And so the mutual intelligibility of these diverse languages would have meant, I think, for the earliest Jewish Christians that the fulfillment, the reversal of the exile is now about to take place. But that's not quite how it turns out, is it? Right. And it's, again, it's not by making everybody fully linguistically Jewish again. And that's going to come up again in, in chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. But it is... Um, I, it is supposed to be this miracle of bringing all the estranged Jews back together again. Um, but of course, what brings them together is being confronted with their sin for being implicated in the death of Jesus. And so an, an opening irony for this story is that the first estranged community that God brings back to himself, reconciles to himself, is the Jews. Now, if you are a good Old Testament reader, this is not a huge shock. Israel being estranged from God is a pretty commonplace happening. But it is very important to see that this is connected to all the other estrangements that are overcome by the gospel reconciliation. It's the first of them. And so first the Jews are brought back in through their, their um, repentance. And uh, one other thing to note, again, building on this Old Testament, New Testament connection, is that Peter's preaching is very much an interpretation of the Old Testament. So he cites this um, beautiful passage from Joel about the Holy Spirit being poured out. But notice, Joel says, will be poured out on all flesh. Peter has no idea the gravity of what he's saying. He will be very shocked to have to take Joel's words seriously some chapters down the road. And the other important one is Psalm 16, talking about you will not let your Holy One see the pits and or 
fall into corruption. And so it's from preaching very much, again, out of Israel's faith that he commends Jesus to them, asks them to repent and be baptized. And they say that, um, you know, 3,000 are baptized and brought in. And then at the end of the chapter, we have this allusion to the, um, the communal living that results. People get really romantic about that. We'll see quickly why we don't do that anymore. <laughs> okay, so the, the next couple of chapters are really focusing on the Jerusalem ministry again, because Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So this is still the Jerusalem story. So in chapter three, Peter and John raise a lame beggar. Uh, it's the first time the disciples seem to do a miracle on their own. I kind of wonder if Peter was surprised when he did it. And then they, they say to the crowds, the God who raised Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our fathers. Again, very, very close alignment of the Old Testament story with the new message about Jesus Christ. They're not to be seen as at odds with each other. The Jewish leaders arrest Peter and John in chapter four, but more people convert. There's all this confrontation. They insist that they will keep preaching that salvation is only in Jesus' name. And then interestingly, I think this is a very important detail, the community gathers to pray for boldness. And when they implicate evildoers in the Jesus story, they say it's Herod and Pilate. So we have the Jewish king and the Roman governor. And then they say it's the Gentiles and the children of Israel. So against the, let's say, you know, late Matthew and much of John tradition of blaming it exclusively on the Jews, already here, even though no Gentiles have been saved yet, they're put together in a position of responsibility. It's not only the Jews are guilty of, of crucifying Jesus. Uh, both Jewish and Gentile peoples are blamed for it. And that story ends quite interestingly with the whole house being shaken by the descent of the Holy Spirit. So this is an interesting little detail. You get the, they got the Holy Spirit already in the Pentecost events, but it's not like that's it. <laughs> Apparently the Holy Spirit can come again, can come more, give other things. In this particular case, it seems to be connected with boldness and witness. Um, and I think that actually probably but my own opinion, and this is very much my own opinion, that probably story um, is more um, representative and emblematic of the Pentecostal experience than actually the Pentecost experience itself is. Um, not least of all, because Pentecost's gift of tongues is foreign tongues, not the tongues of angels. A fairly significant difference. In fact, recently in Bible study, we were doing um, the Pentecost story, and uh, somebody who I evidently had never noticed that before was like, is this true? When you get the Holy Spirit, can you speak foreign languages? And I was like, oh man, if only it was true. Japanese is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm afraid this is the only time in the whole Bible we hear it seems to be a special thing to mark the, uh, the tremendous event of the day, not to be a common and repeated gift, more is the pity. Uh, in chapter five, now this is the part which really helped, um, in a way, uh, redeem Acts for me. And um, credit for this insight goes to my friend Troy Troftgruben, who teaches New Testament at Wartburg Seminary and is a great Acts scholar. I've learned so much from him. But as I, I mentioned earlier, my feeling was that Acts was this triumphant march to glory, and it really annoyed me. And what he pointed out to me, well, the reason why is I asked him, you know, people love to cite this thing about they held everything in common and, you know, and they were praying and everybody gave what they had. And it just sounds like what people thought communism was supposed to be and shouldn't be. And I just, I just heard a lot of, a lot of romanticism about like, oh, if only we Christians did that today. And, you know, most of these communal living experiments fail. And when they do succeed, they have to have very, fairly rigid systems of control to prevent 
human concupiscence from ruining them. But but then I, it struck me like we never hear this again. This is at the end of of um, chapter four is the last we hear of collective Christian living. So I thought, well, that must mean something, right? <laughs> like even if we quote it all the time, it doesn't remain part of the act story. And what Troy pointed out to me is that the very next story is the Garden of Eden all over again. It's the Garden of Eden happening in the early church. And so again, just a tremendously interesting connection between the Old Testament story and the New Testament story. It's not like becoming part of the church or receiving the Holy Spirit puts you beyond sin or severe error. And we'll actually see quite a lot of that. So basically what happens is Ananias and Sapphira are this married couple. Lots of people have been selling their goods and giving the disciples, the apostles, the proceeds from them. Ananias and Sapphira decide to do the same, but they don't give all the money. But interestingly, the problem is not that they don't give all the money, it's that they say that they gave all the money. So it's a very subtle sin. It's not like it's it's actually like the Garden of Eden, you know, Eve and Adam see that this apple is attractive and they'd like to have knowledge. They don't even realize that what they're doing is so much a denial of God and God's lordship over their life. So in Ananias and Sapphira's case, they are trying to appear more righteous than they actually are. And this seems to be actually the primary temptation of the new Christians is to make an appearance that is deceptive in order to be more righteous than they really are. And of course, it ends um, in more dramatic fashion, even in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are told that they will die, and they do eventually die, but not immediately. Ananias and Sapphira, however, when confronted with the truth, both keel over dead. It's pretty harsh, but it does seem to be this origin story of sin in the church, and that it is still in the church. It's not a perfectly happy, hearty, righteous community with no flaws at all. Corpus per mixtum, if I may quote St. Augustine. Right. Why don't you translate that phrase for us, too? Uh, Were we in the church or one mixed up bunch of people? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, and I said this really escaped me the first time through. I would say Luke is deliberately subtle about it. I don't know. Maybe a a double double death is not subtle, but it, it passed me by the first time. Yes. So the whole possibility of treating Christian faith as access to power with which to bargain with God. That's what Peter objects to. Anyway, in the rest of chapter 5, I won't go into it in great detail, but uh, people are so impressed with Peter's healing ability that they bring their dead out, hope, or their dead out, their sick out, in the hopes that even his shadow will fall on them and heal them. And they're once again brought before the council. There's the civil disobedience clause of 529, we must obey God rather than men, um, which is important in the Lutheran confessions. We often think of Lutherans as being very quietistic and unwilling to to, uh, ruffle the political feathers of the leadership, but it is there are several times in the confessions that we should obey God rather than men. And Gamaliel's argument for toleration, if it's of God, it will survive. If not, it will die off anyway. But if it is of God, you may be found to, go, to be going against God. And we find out later that Paul calls himself a disciple of Gamaliel originally. In chapter, yeah, so then in chapter six, we have the linguistic problem come back again. So there's a conflict between the Hebrew speaking and the Greek speaking Jews. So they are, these are all Christians. They, they, I mean, that's a little bit of a, um, 
anachronistic word at this point. The word Christian doesn't come till a little bit later. But these are all believers in Jesus. But there are some Hebrew speaking and some Greek speaking, and they're having a hard time getting along. And their accusations start flying over how they're taking care of the poor widows who can't feed themselves. And so this is where the deacons come from. Um, and the, it's a division of labor so that the apostles can continue preaching the word and the deacons can see to it that everyone is fed. However, Stephen, who is selected to be the head of the deacons because he's a man full of the Holy Spirit, in the next chapter, chapter 7, gives the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. So evidently, deacons are not um, stopped from, from preaching the word. And now this is a really striking thing, again, on the Old Testament, New Testament connection. Again, and Stephen is preaching to fellow Jews, but his sermon is essentially a recital of Old Testament history, and it's heavy on Moses, and it's basically positive. It's not a, you know, this is a particularistic, parochial, primitivistic, regressive religion, and we're leaving it behind with Jesus. What he's doing is he's talking about all that God has done with the people of Israel all through the ages. And his specific criticism at the very end is that the people he's addressing now, these Jewish leaders around the Jerusalem temple, that they are the heirs not really of the true Israel, but of the the aggressors who killed the prophets. So I mean, this is still not unproblematic for a, a happier Christian-Jewish relationship today. Let's let's be clear about that. But my the point I want to make here is it's not throwing out Old Testament history. Everything about Jesus is interpreted through the lens of Old Testament history, and the split is over whether or not Jesus continues that history. But it's not over whether Jesus departs from that history. But you know, you could make the connection that the conflict between uh, temple and prophet, it runs all through the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Christian Old Testament. So this is not a new uh, conflict, what is happening in the book of Acts. When the uh, apostles are saying, repent and believe, and the authorities are replying, what you're saying is threatening the existence of the temple establishment in Jerusalem. Well, that's continuous with a theme that runs all through the scriptures of Israel. Exactly. And and that's really the point I want to get across is this is a, again, I say clearly, from a Christian perspective, this is a continuation of God's story with Israel in the Old Testament. It is not a break or departure from it. And the preaching in Acts really, really heavily emphasizes this point. So I I find Acts helpful now, um, as I've come around to it, in seeing that from a Christian perspective, there has to be continuity. And so the conflicts are, as you say, within the story of Israel, not between Israel's story and some other story, whether it's a new and improved Christian story or some other story entirely. Good. I'm going to start skipping a little bit faster ahead here, but the the reason to get to Stephen, of course, is that he is the first Christian martyr. I'm not going to call Jesus a Christian martyr because he's not a Christian. Um, He's stoned. It's not actually, I mean, his sermon ends so offensively and aggressively. You stiff-necked people, you know, no wonder. (laughs) And they get really mad and they pick up stones and throw them at him. And of course, we hear that this certain young man, a certain young Pharisee named Paul is standing by holding their cloaks and approving of what they're doing. And so again, we have a super duper bad guy whose story is now going to be brought in. So kind of the opposite of Ananias and Sapphira, um, church people in good standing, 
something who appear to be righteous hears of someone outside the church who is seriously unrighteous, but he is going to end up being the center of the story. And the fact that he appears so late um, in the opening drama, I mean, at the end of chapter seven, gives you no way of, of foreseeing how central he will be to the whole rest of the book. All right, but now to, to get back to the Holy Spirit in gathering. So there are three more major events in the story, and that's what I really want to talk about for the rest of our time. So what happens basically is following Stephen's martyrdom, it becomes very dangerous to be a believer in Jesus in Jerusalem, and people start to scatter looking for safer havens. And among those who leave Jerusalem is Philip. Now, it's interesting. We Philip kind of becomes the star of the next sequence. We don't hear a whole lot about him in the Gospels and not much after this, and and we have no idea why he, of all the ones, uh, all the apostles, was the one to wander off. But he's the one who takes the next big step, or who, through the Holy Spirit, is made to take the next big step. So Philip leaves Jerusalem, and he wanders off to Samaria, which I call the land of the bad Jews. So these are, Samaritans are the remnants of the destroyed northern kingdom. Um, they've intermingled with the presumably Assyrian invaders, and their version of Judaism is illegitimate and unorthodox. Um, we see that tension in stories like in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman and they argue over our ancestor Jacob and the well and so forth, and the disciples are astonished that they're talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman about that, about things of God. And of course, Luke gives us a foreshadowing in the gospel by making the hero of his most famous parable, uh, Jesus' most famous parable, to be a Samaritan who does the right thing when the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite pass the, the man beaten by the side of the road by entirely. So these are people who would have been very much looked down upon as religiously compromised people. But Philip ends up among them. He preaches, and the Samaritans believe. And since they believe, he baptizes them. And it's emphasized that both men and women are baptized. And then they mention this fellow, Simon Magus, who had been a hotshot because he did all these cool tricks, magic tricks, and uh, people paid attention to him. But interestingly, Simon Magus also comes to believe in Jesus and asks for baptism. Now, word gets back to Jerusalem, and this is very unsettling. Like, what is Philip doing there, and why is he baptizing Samaritans? So Peter and John go down to investigate. And when they get there and they discover, wow, these people really do believe in Jesus, um, since they have been baptized, it makes sense to lay hands on them, on these new believers, and in so doing, they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, let me just give a little interesting side note in the history of Pentecostal interpretation. Um, early classical Pentecostals um, talked about a sequence of blessings from God. Um, actually, there were there were two sequences, and <laughs> it, it's as complicated as theology always is. But there was this basic idea that the first step is conversion. Um, this is understood to be something that happens when you're old enough to fully understand, and you have a conversion experience and that is your salvation and your justification. And then it's after you are saved that you may then receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which um, brings with it the, um, the gift of tongues. And tongues is often called initial evidence. So it's sort of like the, the hard proof that you really did get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, there's also another Pentecostal, the more holiness side of it. There's a sequence of conversion, then a separate experience of sanctification. And only after that, you have the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues. 
Anyway, um, interestingly, this, this story about Samaria is invoked as proof of the doctrine of subsequence, namely the idea that you, you have a conversion experience and then only afterwards you get tongues because the Samaritan believers first believe the preaching and as a result they ask for baptism. And then only later Peter and John come with um, laying on of hands that results in them speaking in tongues. But I think the, the bigger picture that's going on here is not a sequence for individual believers. Actually, nowhere else is there such a huge time delay between baptism and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit and tongues. And there's no mention of tongues here at all, actually. Yeah, and I would just make a comment about that, that the Pentecostals didn't invent this. This is called in classical theology, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And what's wrong, I think, with all such approaches is that they try to make one psychological pattern or sequence normative for all, that there's a specific order in which you experience things And then you get into these terrible conflicts about who's got the order correctly and properly and so forth and so on. And the the underlying assumption is that there is a specific psychological sequence that has to be fulfilled. And I think this is just profoundly false, actually, to psychological experience. People become believers in all sorts of different ways psychologically. And there is no uniform pattern of psychological experience that can account for uh, the gift of faith and the work of the Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And I think in all fairness, we should admit that there has been a long history of Lutheran theologians trying to work out their own ordo in excruciating detail of how it's supposed to happen. As you say, it's not only the Pentecostals' faults. What I think is worth appreciating, though, about this classical Pentecostal approach, though, is that they do distinguish being saved from receiving what they call the baptism in the Spirit. So it's not an implication that those who have not had this experience or gift of tongues are not saved. And I I think we should give them credit for getting that very much right, that uh, charismatic gifts are subsequent to people's salvation, not a condition of their salvation. Um, But what I want to say, that the bigger picture that I think is going on here in in this one example in all of Acts of of a significant time delay between baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit, though in in Acts they'll go in both directions. Sometimes it's the Holy Spirit and then baptism, sometimes baptism, then the Holy Spirit. Um, But the reason why there's such a gap here is because it's the first time somebody, any people outside of the immediate circle of Jerusalem Jews are coming to believe, or, you know, Galilean Jews, but like proper Jews. So Samaritans are somehow Jewish, but not really Jewish. Like they're a very ambiguous hybrid category. And so I think what we're being told here in this Holy Spirit's process of gathering people in is the delay is specifically to validate their being brought into the gospel and into baptism. And so it's really important, in fact, that Peter and John come down, check it out, and authorize it and say, okay, this is for real. And then because they are baptized, they, they do need to you know, have this laying on of hands and receive the Holy Spirit. This story is then followed up immediately with another one of these hybrid cases. Philip wanders off. He's at the side of the road, and he meets up with an Ethiopian eunuch. Again, a casual reader will see, will mistakenly think this is another Gentile story. Well, of course, the Ethiopian eunuch, in one sense, is certainly a Gentile because he's an Ethiopian. But more to the point, he's a proselyte, which means that he's someone who is already somehow converted to or converting to 
Judaism. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he's reading the book of Isaiah. So this isn't just like your random, you know, Roman centurion, as we'll meet in a few chapters, or just anybody Gentile. He's already very much part of the story of Israel and Jewish belief, but uh, despite his not being ethnically Jewish. But in terms of the historical logic of Acts, um, he's already in this hybrid position like the Samaritans. And so, of course, Philip then interprets to him Isaiah and says, uh, you know, this, this one who was wounded for our transgressions, this is Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead. And the eunuch is so excited, he says, look, there's water. Why not baptize me right now? And he gets baptized instantly. Interestingly, there's no mention there one way or another of the Holy Spirit or tongues, just baptism is emphasized as the proper response to believing in Jesus. Okay, then we're, what happens in the next section is um, the conversion of Saul in his gradually turning into Paul. Um, it's a great story, uh, but we're not going to talk about it right now because we want to get right on to the second turning points. So we've had the sequence, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now we have to go the final step and to the end of the earth. And so what happens in chapter 10 is the really tremendous turning point, the one that causes way more conflict even than the Samaritans do. And this is what, you know, if, if we're going to have our, our Gentile celebration of being brought into, being grafted into Israel, this should be our holiday, is Cornelius's conversion, um, not Pentecost per se, um, because this is the story where the outsiders, uh, the, the true outsiders, the, the hostile outsiders come in. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, so definitely... Um, you know, he, he's praised as being, you know, liked by the people of the region. But I mean, the fact is, he's still, you know, an outpost of the Roman occupation. He's an official bad guy. However, he is a believer in God, and he has been praying and seeking God truly. All right, and I have to admit, when I read this as a um, very ardent Lutheran seminary student, it really offended me because it thought it sounded to me like it was saying people who search hard enough for God will be rewarded with finding God, which was, you know, the opposite of the kind of spirituality that I was being taught, that it is God who seeks us out. But again, that is me missing the point with a personal and psychological interpretation of what I believe for Acts is really a historical story of estranged communities being brought into the gospel salvation. So we have these um, two visions happening. Cornelius gets a vision of, of God telling him to seek out um, Simon called Peter at, at the Tanner's house. And then Peter has this, I think, hilarious vision. <laughs> I suppose it's easy for a Gentile to say. But um, he's hungry. <laughs> he was, he's going to go get something to eat. But he first falls into a trance. And in the trance, he has a vision of all kinds of unclean foods descending on a sheet from heaven and hearing a command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter refuses because he has never broken Jewish food laws. But the reply comes, what God has made clean, do not call common. This is a really significant break, as you can imagine, for someone who has always been a very faithful Jew and kept the food laws and so forth. And it's emphasized that he has this vision three times. And then later on, when he reports on this experience, he will describe it again. So you essentially, the story is told and happens six times in Acts. That's how important and pivotal it is for what is going to happen with the, the Jewish Gentile connection. 
But also, when he finally then meets Cornelius, he realizes that there's a double meaning involved. So Peter, of course, is going to famously stick with Jewish dietary laws, and that's what his blow-up with Paul in Galatians is going to be about. But he realizes in meeting Cornelius that there's actually a bigger issue involved, is that what God has created or what God has made clean, do not call common or profane. It's actually really about Cornelius and about the Gentiles. And Peter has properly kept his distance from Gentiles all this time. But he's had this sudden shocking realization that God has made these Gentiles clean and has called them to himself. I am not allowed to consider them profane anymore. And this links back to Peter's preaching from the book of Joel, which says that the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. At the time, he had not realized the implications of that. Now he's going to see it actually happening. So um, Peter goes with Cornelius's men who have been sent to collect him from the tanner's house. Incidentally, tanning was a very stinky business, very low class. Um, So the fact that a centurion would freely listen to somebody who hangs out with tanners is also a striking fact. And so Peter goes and he was like, okay, well, I guess I'll tell you the message that I'm telling all the Jews I know. And it's hilarious before he even manages to finish talking, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and all the people with him and they start praising God and speaking in tongues. And Peter is just gobsmacked by this. But he says, okay, well, God has made them clean. He's given them the repentance that leads to life. They believe in Jesus. They're speaking in tongues. I guess I better baptize them. And it's very interesting to me that that's his first reaction. Like, I can't withhold baptism. I have to baptize these people. And then he he goes back home and reports on what's happened. And needless to say, it causes another big um, to-do back in Jerusalem as they try to come to terms with what's happening. So Peter tells the whole story again. So again, we have a, a whole repetition that takes place. So 10 and 11 are kind of echoing each other again to emphasize how pivotal this is for the whole story of Acts. There continues to be all kinds of conflicts. Um, John's brother James is killed by Herod. I guess that's a Zebedee brother. It's not clarified whether or not that's the case. Um, Peter gets imprisoned. Really cute story of a young servant girl named Rhoda who's so excited to see Peter alive that she forgets to actually let him in the front door. Um, That's got to be real. It's such a bizarre little detail. There's no reason you would ever make that up. Um, Barnabas and um, Saul start working together, and we get the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, in fact, they're mistaken for being Zeus and Hermes by some Gentile communities who attempt to offer sacrifices to them. But anyway, what we see here is Paul is going around and he he visits lots of synagogues and preaches to Jews, but more and more Gentiles are overhearing him too. And so this is how Luke is weaving together the Jerusalem Peter-centered story of including Gentiles with Paul's mixed community um, missions and how Paul is eventually going to um, twice he actually says in the course of Acts, you know, I, I've had it with you guys, you Jews. I'm, I'm not even bothering with you anymore. I'm going to the Gentiles. This brings us into the Jerusalem Council. And this is, again, uh, the, the, uh, one of the major turning points, um, not in the event so much as in the interpretation of the event of the Gentiles believing. So there are some who are going around saying, you cannot be a, a Christian. You cannot be, or actually more specifically, you cannot be saved without being circumcised or keeping the law of Moses. And so this is the big question for the early church. In order to be a Christian, do you first have to be a Jew? In order to stay a believer in Jesus, do you have to keep the laws of Moses? 
Now, I would just like to say it's really easy for us to dismiss this as being ridiculous, the circumcision party, and of course we shouldn't have to keep the law of Moses and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, I live like a Gentile. I do all sorts of things that are forbidden by Old Testament law. But I think we need to have a little sympathy towards the Pharisees who I think already saw a critical question arising. Will Gentile believers still really remember and be a part of God's history with Israel if they're not doing the things God commanded to Israel, which is what made them Israel and set them apart from everyone else? And I think the historical record shows they were right in that respect. It was too easy for Gentile believers to turn on on the Jews and the Jewish legacy and the Old Testament story, they were onto something in their concern. Now, I'm not saying that we should t- become kosher as Gentile Christians, but I think it's it's too easy to dismiss their concerns as being unfounded or restrictive. I think actually they were right. Yeah, that's a real interesting reflection. Can you sustain an orthodoxy without an orthopraxis? And if you give up kosher and circumcision and so forth, Will you retain the same faith in the God of Israel that Luke has been concerned to emphasize continuity with during all of these first 15 chapters of Acts? Right. And exactly like we, we talked about last in our last episode about all all the significant figures in the history of Christianity who have tried to sever that relationship, starting with Marcion, you know, and saying, that's not our God anymore. I think there is something to be said for the fact that unless you are doing as God commanded Israel, it's really hard to sustain your connection to Israel and call this, you know, your that you are really engrafted and that these are the roots that are feeding you. So, but what I think then is interesting about this is, you know, Peter again tells, he tells the story again about what's happening and that they were, their hearts were cleansed by faith. They were saved the same way as Jews were. This, I think we can hear a little more distinctly Pauline echo here, that they were saved by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ, just like the Jews were. And so the issue there is, is Jesus saving grace given in faith with the Holy Spirit. That's that's the distinguishing issue about being a Christian, not the keeping of the law of Moses. And so after much discussion, they decide, okay, yes, we have to recognize these as being fully believers in Jesus along with us. And then they write a letter to whatever future Gentiles and ask them, to do four things. And so this is much less than the the whole law of Moses, but it's very striking what they choose. They say, refrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. And this obviously was a really live issue because it comes up in 1 Corinthians 8 again. Refrain from consuming blood. This actually is one of the most core principles of um, Levitical law is that blood belongs to God, so you shouldn't consume it. So even though they're saying don't keep the law of Moses, this is a very, very much a law of Moses kind of thing they're asking them to refrain from doing. Third, refrain from eating meat from strangled animals. Again, there were proper ways to kill animals that would be consumed. And finally, number four, from sexual immorality, which is kind of funny because the first three are about eating and then the fourth covers an extremely broad range of practices. And uh, I just read an amazing book called Paul Among the People by a woman named Sarah Rudin, which is all about... um, uh, what Roman life was really like. I was shocked. I had no idea it was so horrifying. <laughs> but um, I, I think the shorthand version would be there is no form of sexual immorality that the Romans did not indulge in and defend. So that um, not engaging in that would have really set them apart from the world around them. 
Um, and then this, be- this uh, travels about. So anyway, from there, we have all kinds of exciting missionary journeys between Paul and Silas. And you can see the whole drift of Acts now moving towards um, Paul's missionary journeys and confrontation with Roman political authorities. And because Jesus' prophecy or promise is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth, you would think that um, the story is basically like we've covered all the territory. You know, the Gentiles are in now, so the story is done. But what's really interesting is there's one more community left to come in. And unless you have been paying attention to the subtle clues in Luke Acts, you would have no idea who it is. The final group to come in is John's disciples. And this is really funny because you would think that they would be part of the Jewish story early on in the inclusion, but actually they are at the far end. They are the last estranged community to come in. So what happens is um, in... Uh, the end of chapter 18, we've met Priscilla and Aquila, the uh, married couple star team who travel around, uh, build tents like Paul and preach. And we hear there that they meet with a preacher named Apollos. He's also mentioned in some of the epistles um, as being an extremely gifted evangelist and preacher. Luke heaps praises on him. And I think it's to excuse Apollos's one major flaw, which is that he only knows about John's baptism. And when Priscilla and Aquila meet with him, they take him aside and so that they may instruct him more accurately. And after that, presumably, he gets the message that Jesus' baptism is not John's baptism. And that's the story, finally, that ends this in-gathering collective um, in chapter 19. What happens is Paul goes up to Ephesus and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say to him, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That is an extremely perplexing question. We should see by now that belief and the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. So Paul says, wait a minute, then what have you been baptized into? And they say, into John's baptism. And he's like, ah, that's the problem. So what we see here now, and um, in our, our, our next one, I think we'll talk more about these baptism issues. What we see here is that there are followers of John who had been receiving baptism, John's baptism, but not baptism in Jesus' name. And as a result, they didn't get the Holy Spirit. So it's, so it's interesting, Paul realizes, as soon as he finds out they don't have the Holy Spirit, he realizes they can't have gotten baptism in Jesus' name. The two are so Im- uh, implicated in each other, so entangled. So um, Jesus says, ah, all right, well then, let me tell you about Jesus and baptism in Jesus' name. And they then are baptized in Jesus' name. Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So that then is the end of the story in terms of gathering in the communities. What's really striking to me is it's almost the end of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You know, we talk about Acts as being, you know, again, for Pentecostals, the big Holy Spirit book. But after this point, I think there's maybe four more mentions of the Holy Spirit in the whole last 10 chapters. And I think almost all or most of them are Paul just mentioning that the Holy Spirit prompted him to go somewhere or not go somewhere. It doesn't have this kind of like cosmic major events gathering in a group of people. So I, I would say that there is something finished 
with chapter 19 and the inclusion of the the disciples of John, that there is, I, I think there's almost an analog to Jesus cry, it is finished, and that in the crucifixion and resurrection, something is done that is not a repeatable event, but has has reached where it needs to get. So again, to, a, to invoke a, an early Pentecostal theology, there was a split between the holiness-oriented communities and the Baptist-oriented ones. The, the holiness ones were the ones who had the three-part sequence, that there's first conversion, then sanctification as an experience, and finally, the gift of the Holy Spirit, or the baptism in the Holy Spirit as an ex- uh, experience. And then um, the more Baptist-influenced, um, some Reformed-influenced too, um, Pentecostals under the influence of a, a man named William Durham, he, he actually taught, he said, no, um, in when you are converted to Jesus, you receive all of what he has. So he is your righteousness, your justification, but also your sanctification. And he didn't argue for a kind of perfection of the believers, which was a greater tendency of the sanctification as a distinct experience camp. Um, and he called this the finished work of Christ. And so that became kind of like the the dogmatic tagline for non-holiness Pentecostals, that they were about the finished work of Christ, you got everything in conversion, and then a separate experience from that was baptism in the spirit. And so inspired by that language of the finished work, I would like to argue that what we see in Acts is a finished work of the spirit that from the day of Pentecost when the first group of estranged Jews from all over the Mediterranean come together and hear the gospel in their own languages and believe and are baptized. That is the beginning of the Spirit's work. And then in chapter 19, looping back and sealing forever that Christian baptism is not John's baptism, but that Christian baptism is in Jesus' name and conveys the Holy Spirit, that forms a complete unit of the Holy Spirit's work, at which point it is done. So what I would like to hear now, sorry, I've done so much of the talking in this episode and we should wrap up, but I would just be curious, Dad, to hear how you think about that thesis in terms of the apocalyptic versus salvation history progressivist historicist narrative. Yeah, well, I'll revert again to Oscar Kuhlmann's idea of inaugurated eschatology, which it does not mean as Konzelman so implied that this is simply the flattening out of eschatology or leveling out of eschatology into history. It's not the end of time, but it's the time of the end that is breaking in and occurring in these turning points in the book of Acts that you're talking about. And that's not, as you rightly point out, against the individualistic interpretation. Of course, that's not just that people get saved in this way or that way, or according to some psychological pattern, but that communities are being reconciled and united uh, by this work of the Spirit. So I think uh, there's a, a couple of things here that are really, really noteworthy. An apocalyptic theology is, apocalyptic is a framework for theology that there is a and we are enmeshed in a cosmic struggle between God and the devil, between good and evil. Now, that can simply be unmodified. You can have apocalyptic literature in which that cosmic dualism is just there and unreconciled. Paul's apocalyptic is Christologically modified. It's modified precisely in the doctrine of the justification of the ungodly, 
what's what breaks apart the radical sheer dualism of the eons in the apocalyptic scheme is that Christ invaded the world of darkness and made the minions of Satan his own uh, by his life and death on the cross and so forth. So the, it breaks into this uh, period um, of darkness and and subverts it and, and captures people and so forth. So Paul has an ecclesiology. As Kaysman pointed out, the body of Christ for Paul is not just a metaphor. He really thinks the risen Lord has an earthly body, which is this communion of his people. So I don't think Luke is totally wrong to say if Paul is right about the body of Christ, and if a body takes up space on this earth, it also passes through time on this earth. And it is possible to write a narrative of the Spirit's work in gathering the body of Christ. So this would be a way of recognizing the generational difference between Paul and Luke and recognizing that Luke is writing things in his own idiom according to his own creativity uh, I don't see that there's a deep conflict here between the kind of, quote, salvation history, end quote, that you have attributed to Luke, because this salvation history is always the sovereign work of the free-blowing spirit who shows up and does these things and moves the story along. This is not any kind of imminent evolution, as if the script had been built in to the nature of things, and it's simply unfolding. Yeah, I think it's really striking that you mention bodies occupy not only space, but also time. I think that actually really hits the nail on the head, because in the New Testament, there's this permeating question, why hasn't he come back yet? We thought he was coming back soon. And the answer that emerges again and again is, ah, because the gospel has to be preached to all nations, and that it needs to spread out, and that apocalyptic does not mean the imminent end and destruction of the earth. Um, but um, how we how we experience apocalyptic has to be different from that. Uh, it seems to me that if Okay, if God is Trinity, if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if creation, redemption, and sanctification um, are all really, all of them are really God's work, then I think you have to have both apocalyptic and salvation history interacting with each other. If you choose, if you choose only, let's say, if you choose only salvation history, which is in a way of saying only the doctrine of creation. You can't help but be, make a god of your own people or race or culture or or whatever. Or your own cosmopolitan fantasies. Right. You know, or um, or even the way people, you, you see commonly people investing messianic hopes in their children, their their um, beloved, <laughs> um, you know, their, their heroes or movie stars or whatever. I think those are all examples of creation- only creation of salvation history, only salvation history, even when they're secularized. But at the same time, if you have only apocalyptic, you become a fanatic. You abandon the earth that was given. That's um, right. The point is that it's the earth that gets redeemed and sanctified. It's not, it's again, not left behind. Like Israel was not left behind. It's, exactly. It is, 
the, the, the thing that is being redeemed. And so I, I, I've come to be more appreciative of Luke Axon, I guess I could say is because we need to live like we need to, to eat and marry and have children and sleep and work and do all these things that are not apocalyptic on the surface. But I don't think we can do them well if we take them as being ultimate. I think they become, well, they become idols and gods and they kill us if they become the ultimate thing. And so I think when we're, we're pulled too much towards the apocalyptic framework, we need a, you know, something like Acts that tells, you know, the body of Christ extended through time and over generations to settle us down again, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, apoc- when apocalyptic is disillusioned, as happened after the fall of Jerusalem to the Roman siege in the se- year 70 of the first century, apocalyptic Jews uh, morph into early Gnostics and their Christian fellow travelers along with them. Uh, Gnosticism is disillusioned apocalyptic. So the Christological modification of apocalyptic that we see in Paul is absolutely crucial. Kazeman is not advocating for an unmodified apocalyptic, but he is arguing that apocalyptic frames the question and so that we can uh, locate the history of salvation within this framework rather than as an independent a doctrine of providence or progress or history of religions or evolution or something like that. Yeah, that's. I mean, all those seem really foreign to how Luke Acts would even be capable of thinking anyway. Yeah, I think what you've showed us today, which is very helpful, is that the, the literary work, Book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, is structured by these sovereign initiatives of the Spirit. And the 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 theme that unites these turning points is always the gathering in of new communities that had been estranged for one reason or another and i think that's a very helpful way of of looking at the this unique and wonderful book of the new testament great so the conclusion is acts not as bad as you thought <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we can conclude on that happy note All right. Well, Rex raises lots of great uh, further questions that we want to continue with. So next time, our topic will be baptism, infant and otherwise. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.